underway. I do mean underway. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. We have concluded the following. Because I know more than anybody. Cold winter has apparently not affected the army. They know Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 34 of Pounding the Table. The Pounders team's grown quickly, and we just finished off our first weekly Twitter spaces, but that wasn't quite enough, Tony, because we are back in the lab here on Wednesday night, putting in work after hours, because the day is finally here to celebrate my bachelor party, and knowing myself, there is absolutely zero chance I will be either in physical or mental shape to even say, so Tony, come Sunday. (laughs) We got a lot going on this week. I feel like I say that every week, but it is meme season 2.0 and we got short squeezes on deck. One of our favorite e-com plays Etsy has an acquisition and my own baby skills has one of their own. So we'll talk about that a bit and we'll wrap things up with an interview with Danny Baldo Strauss, whom I kind of like to call the Dalai Lama of Twitter. Without further ado, kick us off with that quick disclaimer, Tony. Yeah, we had a lot of fun on the Twitter spaces. Glad to be doing that every week with a bunch of the other content we're going to be putting out. Quick disclaimer here before we get started. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, our Twitter account, our spaces, everything are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitation. And if you're just listening for the first time and are new, Pounding the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and Anthony Ohai and yours truly talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted. You know what time it is, Tony? What time is it, Avi? It's uh, summertime and the living is easy. And there is no better time than ever before, I think, to rent video games from GameStop, sit back in an AMC movie theater with some lemonade, because we are seeing Squeeze Season 2.0. How does this keep happening? And more importantly, are you getting FOMO? Because my BlackBerry leaps were flying. Yeah, I got to say, these are some of the hardest days on the market for me, just mentally. Like, even though I made money today and this week, like, seeing people make millions and millions off of, like, AMC, GameStop and everything... Like you can't help but be jealous, right? Like I try to be a diligent, meticulous investor. And then like you could throw 700 in Shiba Inu coin and make a million and stuff, right? But like, I'm happy for those guys. I hope they keep it and and sell before this comes back down as it always does and always will. So that's something to consider for sure because these squeezes are not meant to be kept up here, right? Those things always revert. And as you've seen, like this happened in January, this happened in February and they do come back down to earth at some point. You can see how crazy the premiums are and everything. Like if you're buying puts or calls on any of these names that are squeezing to the moon, if you weren't in there before, you're probably just going to lose money at this point because of how high they've gotten jacked. And so like, yeah, of course, they're, they're squeezing the meme stocks, stonks. So they're, they're ripping all those to the moon. But of course, that also translates into other names that we also talk about on here, like Skills, Nanox, and CCIV. Like those companies, in my opinion, a lot of the funds who are doing this you know, long, short, kind of thing, or, or just naturally just short selling funds. Those guys have a lot of positions that, you know, when one starts taking up, you got to start covering that. And then the other one starts squeezing, right? So you're pretty much blowing out individual funds, which is like, 
kind of cool because they're being greedy and they kind of deserve it. But it's also insane because that kind of upsets the market, right? Like last mm. time this was happening, GameStop went to the moon and the S&P 500 it was literally like a pair trade. You could be like long S&P 500 and short GameStop or the other way around, long GameStop, short S&P 500. And it was pretty much moving tick for tick, right? Because the money was flowing into those names. And it's kind of happening here again, right? But this time it's a little interesting because the market's not dumping now. So I'm wondering, like, is this a deja vu with a little twist, right? Because history doesn't really repeat, but it does rhyme. So maybe we'll be seeing something like the market come down in the next coming weeks, just because it upsets the market when you put all this money into these meme stocks, right? And it does correct back to the mean. But what's good is that we see things that deserve to be higher, that's been held down strongly because of these short sellers like skills and CCIV and such. There's very few shares to short, right? These guys got greedy. You can see there was, I think there was 20 shares to short on skills like a Friday or Monday or something. It's insane. If you're not able to even borrow shares to short, then everyone's already in that, right? The, the boat will tip over if everyone's to one side. And, and that's why you're getting 30% skills squeezes, 300 whatever percent AMC squeezes. But I do think that as the S&P goes down, I don't think that the growth names that got hit will keep going down. And I know we covered skills a good bit in our uh, Twitter spaces. And we'll dig into that more in the next podcast, just to make sure we have enough time to go over all the information. But they did just do this recent acquisition. I think it was today and sent the stock flying, obviously. So anything you want to touch on that? I know it's uh, your baby. Yeah, I was genuinely chilling in my bathtub as always. And I saw an alert come through that they made this acquisition. And I, my first inclination was to run and go buy some shares. And then I was like, maybe I should slow down, see what this company does a little bit. So I did honestly, maybe five to 10 minutes of research. And I was like, I got to just add a little bit just to see what happens. And it was up like 5%, I think pre-market. I think it got up to like 30% as the high of the day. And then it came down a little bit to 25%, which is still absolutely massive. So they acquired this company called Arky. Again, we'll spend more time on the next week's podcast talking about this. Uh, but essentially, they're getting into DSPs. So this will allow them to now serve ads to the non-paying customers. So as we've mentioned on podcast after podcast, skills is much like DraftKings, where I can play Tony in a specific game. I bet Tony a dollar. Skills then takes a percentage of that money, right? But they also have games that are free to play. And so now this is an opportunity for them to make additional revenue. They also save costs. DSPs can be as high as about 25%. So they're going to be saving a lot of money there. Again, I don't want to steal our own thunder for next week here, but we'll be talking about this a lot more on an upcoming pod as well. So I mentioned it's my bachelor party this weekend, which means, of course, I'm going to be getting married. And where does everyone go for their custom wedding gifts? Etsy. Because, well, that's all they sell, right, Tony? That and I guess masks. Only just, masks. Just right. masks and wedding gear. This morning you were screaming Etsy and pounding the table, as you always do. And by the time I got off my work calls, the thing was already up 7%. So I said, I can't do it at this point. But what is popping with Etsy? What happened there? Yeah, so Etsy, definitely one of the heads of the table. Been watching it for a long time now, since sub 100. But of course, it's been coming down with the recent earnings report, that price discovery. Everyone thought it was just going to be masks. Of course, we've proven that many, many times in this podcast, that they are far more than just a mask selling COVID benefiting company. Yeah, sure, they're a work from home play, but they're going to be a staple company, in my opinion. And I think this recent acquisition that they did this morning definitely proves that they're looking to make more legs and diversify their business and their revenue streams. Something I really want to touch on, I think people think that all these names, you know, Zoom, Etsy, Fiverr, all these work from home names are just only from COVID. Like they, they would not exist if it weren't for COVID. Well, let's take into consideration that these names are doing just fine before it as well. They just maybe didn't go to the moon, but 
Think about where their revenues and themselves as a business went during this time period, right? You get this growth and it doesn't just fall right off. Maybe it grows slower, but you're still way further ahead than you were, right? E-commerce, we, we had this so many times as discussion, 10 years is the advancement that happened during COVID. So that's insane, right? We've really pivoted as a society. So I really like the fact that Etsy is looking into these new legs. So Etsy today announced that it's acquiring Depop. That's a London-based marketplace that targets millennials and Gen Z consumers. And they have a new take on social shopping. So Etsy's paying 1.6 billion roughly for the company in a mostly cash deal. Now that's another thing I want to touch on there, cash deal. How many companies, you know, just have cash on hand to be able to make a $1.6 billion deal? I kind of want to touch on SPACs here for a second, because all these companies that have come public through a SPAC now have a bunch of cash from either their pipe investment or just from the SPAC deal itself, that they're going to be able to do moves like this and purchase other companies and grow their revenues as well. Depop now has 30 million registered users. I think four or five million active buyers made up of stylists, designers, artists, collectors, vintage sellers, and a lot more. So Tony, this is another like e-commerce play. I remember probably episode five or six when we were talking about Farfetch. So is, is this like have that Farfetch feel to it essentially? Yeah, I think Farfetch has like the super high-end, really, really luxury goods. And, and I think that it's just a, a play on making people more interested in shopping, but not just the traditional like retailer, right? Like I think that this entire trend itself is going to continue to grow. And so Depop is a little different, but I do like that Etsy is considering things that are very similar to other successful companies that are already making a really big name for themselves. Another cool thing is that 90% of Depop's users are under the age of 26. So that gives Etsy a perfect opportunity to use the community in Depop, but also to bring more content and younger shoppers to Etsy. Because right now there's a, there's a trend Etsy, a little bit more of a younger crowd, but there's a ton of old users there too. So they really want to broaden out their user base, which will let them sell way more items. And honestly, I think down the road, if you have a different base, your metrics of your platform, you'll be able to cater to your audience better. And I also think it's a volume game for Etsy. It's not necessarily initially profitable, but Depop in 2020 did see GMV sales of 650 millions and revenues of 70 million. So both of those were up 100% over the year. So that's a pretty big jump. And I think, of course, once again, that's because of COVID, but also as we've just said, that's not going to go away. I do like hearing from both sides of the CEOs. So I want to hear from the person acquiring and the acquiree, right? So the CEO of Etsy, Josh Silverman, said in a statement today, Depop's world-class management team and employees have done a fantastic job nurturing this community and driving organic growth, authentic growth, in a way that aligns with Etsy's DNA and mission of keeping commerce human. So I think that's very cool because as we move more and more towards technology and automation and everything, at the end of the day, Clothes really can't be like automated, at least not today. I don't know what's going to happen, right? Maybe one day you'll have like a Superman skin or whatever, who knows? But I think it's very important because if you just buy something online, you don't necessarily have that connection and that community. It could just be from a random store here or there. And then they also said that they see these opportunities for shared expertise and growth synergies across what will now be a tremendous house of brands portfolio of individually distinct, but very special e-commerce brands. So I think it's very cool on Etsy saying that they align perfectly with their mission statement. And then we'll go to the CEO of Depop, Maria Raga. She added that we're on an incredible journey building Depop into a place where the next generation comes to explore unique fashion and be part of a community that's changing the way we shop. Our community is made up of people who are creating a new fashion system by establishing new trends and making new from old. So like Farfetch, for instance, they have this virtual shopping now where you can like virtually try on things. And that's like a big stick for them that really made them rally a lot. So I think it's all kind of going towards that direction. You want to be able to be at home purchasing things, but you also want to be able to have some sense of 
you belong there. Like you tried it on, even though you didn't kind of thing. And that transaction is expected to close in the quarter three of 2021. So that will show up on their Q4 earnings. And so that's another thing to consider, right? Like that revenue from Depop and whatever it grows from Etsy will not materialize right away, right? It takes time for synergies to happen, even with Teladoc and Livongo. So we've seen a lot of that happen. That's going to be adding on to their revenues for the future, for, for the rest of time, until they buy someone else, which will also add to their revenues. That's mm. kind of, I think, the name of the game that we're going to be seeing a lot in 2021 and 2022. People will be acquiring smaller companies and growing powerhouse, C-limited, six-headed monster kind of legs. Yeah, I mean, you see this a lot, too, with like Facebook and Instagram getting into retail. I think everyone loves this like social element. I always thought Netflix should have, like, your friends watched this recently. Like, I don't know why they don't have it. There's clear reasons they've thought of. Uh, but I think you see this blending of all these different types. And I was just looking this up too, to learn a little bit more about Depop. So they're across 147 countries. So similarly to kind of, again, we're going to be talking about this more next week, but with skills, you know, just expanding that audience where they can then cross blend from Depop customers over to Etsy and all of these new, uh, you know, markets as well. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool what they're doing here. All right, it's time to do a little bit of time travel. Let's go back two weeks ago, and we sat down to have a discussion with Danny Baldus Strauss, who is an absolutely incredible person to follow on Twitter, not only for his stock advice, but the guy is almost like an everyday man's Naval. He's got these constant words of wisdom and positivity. So let's run the tape back here and quickly have a conversation with Danny. We're here with Danny Baldus Strauss. You guys may know him from Twitter. We're super excited to have him on the show. Danny just got back from Costa Rica, so we're getting to some of his travels, who he is as a trader, as an investor, who he is just as a human being as well. So, Danny, glad to have you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So let's start with, you know, just a little bit about you for those who don't know who, who you are, right? Where you came from, where you grew up. How did you kind of come to, to be who you are today, I guess? Yeah, so grew up in a Chicago suburb, and then I, I went to college at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I actually studied investment, finance, and banking, and risk management, and, and minored in entrepreneurship, so kind of putting all those to use now. Moved up to Minneapolis. Uh, I did I worked for Google for a year, and then I went to work for IBM, so that was my, my first job out of college. Went right into to field sales. I was living in Minneapolis, and about three years ago, moved out to Denver, because I, I was flying about... 100 segments a year um, in field sales covering pretty much the whole country. So flying, flying left and right. And so I wanted to kind of make my my weekends a vacation. So I came out to the mountains to, to ski and, and mountain bike and backpack and things like that. So, I mean, it, it was very fun for the first couple of years. I mean, when I was like 20 to 24, I, I would just be visiting my friends like on the weekends. I'd go to New York and then I'd just stay the weekend, stay in New York City or Boston. Went all over. I've actually been to all 50 states mostly oh, because, because of IBM. Cool. Yeah. And uh, we'll just do side trips. So it was fun. But last last couple of years, I mean, it's partly why why I left was it got got to be a burden. You know, I was staying mm -hmm. in a hotel 50 to 70 nights a year and I, I have a fiance, mm -hmm. I have a dog and a home. So it, it was it was getting getting pretty brutal towards the end of it. And it's, it's very cool because I, I kind of think of you in this like four hour work week kind of vibe. And actually it's funny because you know the name of my fun peak life is like comes from that idea. When I was in high school, my coach, uh, his name's Terrence White. He was you know one of my best friends, one of the best mentors I could ever have. He kept on telling me about this, you know, the four hour work week 
his dream was to do that and just go on a boat and sail around the country, just have no responsibilities. Nobody asking him if this is going to be due this time or, you know, to come in the office early or, or go travel around the world. It's really interesting because, you know, he used to work at Fidelity as well. He worked there, I think, for you know, the better part of 10 years. And he was just one day they like, picked up and left. He said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to have my freedom and have my time, like spend time with my fiance and my dog and enjoy my life. So I love the idea of the backpacker. That's your Twitter handle. So it's very cool to, to have you on the show and talk about that lifestyle yeah. that maybe we don't hear about enough on the Twitter community when we're all scrolling all day long. Yeah, I actually I settled on that name because I, I always thought that all I needed in life to be happy was, was could fit in a backpack because some of the, the happiest moments I've ever had were when I had no possessions. I was off on an island truly with just like a backpack and was able to sustain myself, create connections, and, and was just happy. So as I started to get deeper in my career with IBM, I started to you know accumulate more things and was traveling more and, and making good money for somebody my age. I, I just was growing unhappy at, at what that was bringing me. And so I, over the years, just kind of learned that for me, it's, it's all about time. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's intrinsically all that money truly brings is time and options. Yeah, that was similar. I was in Chicago, like freezing my ass off one night and I hit up my friend. I was like, yeah, we got to quit our jobs and go travel. And so we had this whole theory about how we were going to move to Brazil. You know, <laughs> learn, we, we bought like a $400 Portuguese language kit. And then eventually we did quit our jobs and we did go travel. And, and I, I totally agree with you. Besides like the heavy, you know, 60 pound backpack that's on your back and your back sword going in those hostels. But truthfully, like there's so many times you're just on the beach and you're like, fuck, what do we work for? It's this, you know? And so you start thinking about that a lot more. And so you, you just got back from Costa Rica, which I wanted just to touch on a little bit because I spent some time in, in Tamarindo and San Jose. I actually worked on like an organic farm for a bit. And then it was funny too, because I was throwing, you know, a frisbee on the beach with my buddy. And it was like a weird thing when I was like 24. I was like, what am I doing? You know, and the other side, I was like, what did I do to deserve this quite yet? You know, so I don't know if you had any of those thoughts running through your head as a young traveler, leaving the corporate world and then traveling. What was your experience in Costa Rica like? Well, so it was my first international travel experience. I've, I've been to 40, that was my 44th country. And that was the first time since, luckily I got out in January, 2020, I was in Japan, like right before the pandemic. And that, that was, I was grateful Crazy. to have gotten my one big trip in right before then. But I, it, it almost felt surreal to leave the country again. I mean, it, I, I went to Hawaii like a couple week or a couple months ago prior, but didn't didn't quite feel like leaving the country. But Costa Rica, yeah, I mean, every time I travel, I just get like immense gratitude, especially like being young and being able to do that. And I think that's why I keep going back to it because like I'm always going to these places, and it it allows it allows you to zoom out. You get so much perspective when you look at days like today where like Bitcoin's crashing and when you can zoom out and imagine the people that you met, like in Nepal or Bolivia or Costa Rica who are I living. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the U S paycheck to paycheck might mean that you have an iPhone. You might even have a house. So you might have a car and it, that's come. It's a privileged statement coming from like a middle-class mm -hmm. American, but that's the reality of like the gratitude that you should have here. If it's almost like you have the privilege to invest and so yeah. being, in, being in travel, like, yeah, it just gives me a lot of gratitude. And, and I think I take that with me. Um, that's why I love it so much. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I, I was on a spaces yesterday talking about how much I'd love to be able to invest more in, in countries like India and other developing countries, but it's so hard. I mean, exactly what you said, the privilege to invest, there's very few companies that we can get transparent results and, and actually be able to put any money in, let alone, you know, the people as well who live there. So it's mm -hmm. definitely true what you're saying uh, about it being a privilege to be able to even talk about investing and let alone do it. Yeah, it's great. When I was in uh, Cambodia and we were going to Thailand and we didn't realize that there was like, you had to have like a three day window to get your visa. And so as we're walking out, we were just in uh, Phnom Penh for a while and we're like, all right, what the hell are we going to do for the next couple of days? Like we just tore up the city and there's a guy, sure enough, just like walking on a, he, he had a little tuk tuk, came up to us with a piece of paper in English. He didn't speak any English. And it was like, will you teach some orphans, you know, English? And me and my two friends that I was with, we just looked at each other. We're like, fuck it. Let's, let's just go. And so we went two hours into the jungles in Cambodia, <laughs> slept on concrete, literally like we're eating chickens that people were chopping up in front of us. And like, it was the craziest experience of my life. But like, to your point, I think one thing I've learned is like the most frustrating, like at the time, or, you know, you're, you're complaining and things like could not be going back. Those are always the best times to look back on it. And there's so much reflection. Yeah. I think it like allows you to like detach a little bit from money, yeah. just mm -hmm. you know, money as, as far as it's just money, like not the intrinsic value of time that it brings, but as far as money and, and the material possessions that can buy you, I feel like travel that and that gratitude helps you kind of detach away from it. Mm -hmm. And be okay with the volatility because you have, you can zoom out, have perspective. You can say, "I have everything I need," and, mm -hmm. and that's a privileged right. statement. That mm -hmm. I'm coming from my perspective here in the United States, but I, I think it ends up helping with with investing because you're not you're not saying, "Oh, I, I lost X dollars today." You're fine. Your needs are met, mm -hmm. and and your net worth is fluid. You can kind of zoom out and see what other people are dealing with. It just provides a lot of perspective. Well, especially with uh, COVID. So I was just telling Anthony, I took my fiance to Bali two summers ago and we had this awesome driver. He was like the absolute man. And he just messaged me on WhatsApp like two nights ago. And he's like, I'm like, he's like, what's up? How are you doing? And I'm like, doing well, yada, yada, yada. So some quick small chat. And then I didn't even think about it with COVID. There's, there's no transportation. So his job was completely cut off, right? And so they didn't have those tourists to come in and pay them. And he had asked me for like a hundred dollars and he was so, I gave him a hundred dollars via Western union. It was my first time ever sending money via Western union, but like he was so happy and like sent pictures of his kids and like we gave him food. Right. And so it really does put things into perspective of how fortunate, how lucky we are. So just switch gears just a little bit. How did you take that? And like traveling so much, right. Obviously you have your laptop with you, but like what inspired you to kind of, jump onto Twitter. You know, you're having so much fun at the beach, you're exploring different areas. Like what was the mindset of like, Hey, I should probably hop on Twitter and, and share these stories with people. Yeah. I, I underestimated how much time I have. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> All of a sudden I was like, and, and I'm, I'm such a driven, ambitious person. I just want to be doing something. I want to have a right. purpose. So I'm, I'm creating that in different ways. I, I was a finance investment banking major. So in college I had a community, I was part of entrepreneurship club. And, and so I was able to have that network in that community. When I left, and came to Denver, I had friends that were like engineers and teachers. And, and I went and I worked at a camp. I was a camp counselor. That's where I met right. my fiance. And all those people are like outdoor education right. and 
you know, teachers and, and whatnot. So I, I, I kind of lost my network and community of, of being able to talk about entrepreneurship and business and investments and, and just how important financial freedom is to get back your time and to live that, that, that peak life, as Tony would say. Yeah. And so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to put myself in, in that environment. So I'd always been a, a user of Twitter back in, since I think like 2009 and was just kind of a creeper on it. Like I never posted. I just used it kind of for news. 19 was when I was like really starting to like craft a lot of my followers around stocks. And I was actually shifting from larger cap fangs. I was decreasing exposure and those and going a little bit more towards growth. So I found some community there, uh, but I still, again, didn't post. But in, I think it was like late 2020, I just decided I basically have like an investment journal where I, I just take notes of you know, my moves, my thoughts, things I'm learning, like the lessons I'm learning. And I decided to just make that like a kind of a more of like a public journal of sorts. Mm -hmm. And so I just started just posting my thoughts really without caring too much about a following or any, any follow-up. I, a lot of people kept DMing me, asking me like, what's your, what's your plan for Twitter? Like, what's your purpose? Like a lot of the people that <laughs> yeah. have, you know, platitude accounts were, mm. were messaging me. And I was like, I, I don't really have a plan. Like I, I'm just sharing my thoughts and I'm trying to be honest. And I'm just trying, um, honestly with, with COVID too, like a lot of us lost community. Yeah. So having mm -hmm. that online community, sure. whether it's virtual or not, was at least impactful to me to be around like-minded people and yeah. just be able to talk about that without having anybody like compare. I mean, I kind of grew up in that environment and a lot of millennials did where they're apparently, you're, you don't really ask what your parents make. You don't really talk about money. Mm -hmm. that, that was my environment. Mm -hmm. So Twitter kind of shifted that up and there's, there's good and bad things about Twitter. I mean, you get haters as you grow and, and uh, people disagree with you, but you know, all in all, I think it's a, it's a great community and I'm happy to be a part of it and share insights and, and just network is a great networking tool. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, just want to touch back on that, that point of financial freedom, that peak life. I want to know what that like means to you, I guess, maybe in a tangible sense of how can people start to think about getting into that financial freedom? You know, maybe I think a lot of our viewers have full-time jobs like Avi and, mm -hmm. you know, some of them full-time trade like myself, but of course there's always a mix for whatever works best for that person. Yeah. I think uh, for a lot of people, it's like, it's a number, but I think the problem is people move that goalpost and it just keeps mm -hmm. moving. And like, I always looked around at IBM and I saw, I saw people like who were making four or $500,000 in sales and a year. And they were like 65 still working. I mean, some of them like three years ago had a heart attack and they were still working. Oh, and I'm, nice. I, I was trying to figure out if it was just to keep them busy. Cause they didn't, they didn't want the, the boredom of retirement, but I, I knew that that's not what I wanted. And I don't want to control my time and wait until I'm 60 and, and that we're kind of told all these little money stories about what, you know, what we should follow. We should get a job in the house and then retire at 60, mm -hmm. save X dollars. But I found that my happiest moments were when I was caring the least about money, but in order to get to that point of caring less about money, you have to have money. So that's where the power of financial independence comes is that if you can hunker down and really educate yourself, really focus on it for a small period of time, then you have 20, 30, 40, 50 right. years where you don't have to as much and you can kind of take a back seat. That meshes with my investment style, which you guys are better traders and, and stock pickers than I am. But my in investing style has always been to really search for high quality companies and then hold through extreme volatility and build the conviction over time to be able to build that like long-term wealth and those long-term gains. 
mm-hmm. despite knowing that that buy hold is, is kind of a brain dead strategy, but it's one that I think applies and should be followed by by most investors on on Twitter and most people just starting out because yeah, that's right. the easiest way. Yeah. And I think that because you want to prioritize your time, right? Like you don't want to sit in front of your screen every day and, and like trade every little tick like I do. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm in that period right now where I'm focusing for for a few years to be able to, you know, by the time I'm 30, enjoy the rest of my life before I'm 60. And I don't want to be working at IBM in a corporate job making that regardless of what I'm making. That's, you know, that's not the point. It's not necessarily about how much you're making. It's, are you happy and enjoying yeah. the time that you're, you're spending on earth? I guess just to piggyback off what you were saying, because of this buy and hold strategy, how do you get into those positions that you want to be in for that long period of time? Dollar cost averaging, or do you just look for a good opportunity when the market pulls back? Yeah, a lot of them honestly have come from from anecdotal experience. I, I mean, I got into Nvidia because I was competing against them at IBM and I was mm. losing. <laughs> uh, and then I've always said, like, some of the best the companies, especially from 2010 to 2019, were those Fang stocks that were in our everyday mm-hmm. life, Apple and Amazon and things right in front of us, Netflix. I still mm-hmm. think that today there's tons of these companies that are right in front of us too that are going to be long term winners. As far as like creating the the positions. Yeah, usually I usually scale into them. Like Airbnb is one where I, I bit right at the the IPO at like 150. I've basically just been waiting to to build that position about like a third of a position, about like two percent or so, and then try to build up usually to around five percent. But I I usually do let my winners run, and to some extent, probably too far sometimes. Like like <laughs> with Tesla, and that's that's where I'm learning and adapting. Is like the buying to me isn't the hardest part. Because if you're a long-term holder, I mean, I posted this the other day. It's like some people's falling knife that you're catching, like Square in 2018 or NVIDIA in 2018 or even Bitcoin in 2018, you'd be be up huge today had you caught that falling knife and just held. Mm -hmm. So the buying to me hasn't been the hardest part. It's it's always been the selling or the trimming (laughs) on the way up, the taking those gains, being able to book them to potentially buy in to those same stocks at a lower price. But we don't have the the luxury of like Peru and uh, Hong Kong without capital gains tax. That's like, honestly, taxes is one of the hardest things to figure out when to sell because you're creating that tax bill and mm-hmm. you got to set aside money for that. And sometimes yeah. like with Tesla, the, the gains are huge and the tax bills are huge. Yeah. Uncle Sam, he's, he's my least favorite uncle, but he, he's, he's always <laughs> going to be there. Before we get into to Airbnb a little bit more, let's take a step back with what you were saying, how you you had to get some money before you could have that financial freedom. So like, was there any stepping stones to whether you had a savings account, whether you bit by bit, you you paid off your credit card so you didn't have that lingering over you? Is there any like advice or, or guidance you'd give to folks of, hey, you know, I'm sitting here, I have a job, you know, I've had my fun traveling, I'd like to get back there, right? So this is a question personally for me and I'm sure a lot <laughs> of other folks, like how have you done like little stepping stones along the way to to build that financial freedom as you call it? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I, I wouldn't be investing if I was in debt and I'm not counting my, you know, 2.75% mortgage, but right. like student loan debt, like a seven, eight percent or <clears throat> certain auto loans, depending on, on your credit and things like that. I drove like a Honda Accord right out of, right out of college. Mm-hmm. I, I paid off all debt and just, I live simply, I lived in a studio apartment. Whenever I travel, even to this day, I still stay in hostels when I can, Airbnbs cool. now as well. But yeah. uh, I basically, Ramit Sethi has this thing, he, he wrote the yeah. book out with TV Rich, and I love his thing on money dials, which is 
cut costs in areas that you don't care about so that you can spend extravagantly in areas that you do. And for me, like travel is an extravagant area that I can spend in mm-hmm. and things like, like a car uh, or even, you know, nice clothes or, you know, I don't like, I don't go out to eat much ever. Like I, mm-hmm. I enjoy cooking and, and I keep those costs down. So that was the second thing is that I figured out what actually brought me happiness and anything that didn't like add incremental happiness. I just cut those expenses out, but you can only cut those expenses down so much because there's a floor to that. So the FI people might, you know, argue to, to cut coupons and do whatever you can to go do these expenses. But I've always been on the side where income generation has no limit. Like you can create side mm-hmm. incomes. You can, you can have a commission mm-hmm. job. You can create a second business, a third business. You can rent your house out right now. There's so many different, you know, avenues to be an entrepreneur with companies like Etsy and Uber and Fiverr and things right. like that. So income generation has no limit. So that's mm-hmm. the other piece is like you working on those skills to create that type of income outside. And, uh, you know, I started doing that while I was working in a corporate job. I think a nine to five is an excellent way to, to build wealth. If you're in the right one, like I wouldn't go take 70, $80,000 of student loans to, to have a 40 K salary, but mm-hmm. you know, in a it sales role or something like that, like I, I felt like my college was experience was a good investment and that the nine to five got me the cash flow and and set up to be able to have that path to then learn about investing, apply it, and become financially independent. Yeah, that's definitely something that I think a lot of people need to pay attention to is I think a lot of people recently have gotten into the markets. You know, retail is now 25% of trading. And so it's it's really a huge increase over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to even become consistently profitable. And still I make a lot of mistakes. And of course, thinking about those people who may or may not have a lot of savings and may or may not have a lot of ways to generate that income and they're investing, I think focusing on having some type of passive or some safe, stable, secure income source before you can really get into even practicing how to invest, right? Because when you were saying how you went about doing what you did, it's like I made every other decision than you, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's, and and I wish I hadn't, right? Those are things that I wish, like I bought a Tesla out of school and that was a $1.5 million car. Granted, like that was like very personal. I, I didn't, I would have never bought like a Lamborghini or anything. I just, I really wanted to be part of the mission. You know, I was gung-ho about it since I was like 15. So it's different. But once again, I, I sold Tesla stock to buy the car. Had I just held this, that portion of my stock, I mean, I held a lot of, but that's, you know, a $1.5 million car. And, and I think that along the way, I made a lot of mistakes and I've blown up a couple accounts myself. And I just wish that having that consistent cash coming in makes you sleep at night because right now my, my main income source is, is investing. And I only feel comfortable because of all the time and the work hours I put in now. But I think a lot of people who are starting out should really make sure that they're secure in their own selves and pay off that debt, which we've said on the podcast a lot of times, it's important to not have debt because that just looms over your head, whether or not you think about it. It's in your subconscious, like every decision you're making and at the end of the month in those bills. And that stops you from being able to compound. Yeah. I mean, it's just the psychology of money. I mean, it is a hedge to be debt-free and it is a hedge to have hardly any expenses and, and to have a cash flow coming in. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I think cash flow, I even underestimated it when I, when I left, you know, my nine to five, how nice it is to have a very high cash flow and very consistent. Although I, I think it's just as dangerous to have like one income source. I mean, I, I, there were times I agree. Like, I mean, at IBM, you miss your quota two halves in a row, you're gone. So mm-hmm. it took me a while to feel comfortable 
with my skills and my achievement against quota to, to like start to actually buy things like a house because I was like, the stability wasn't there as my only source of income right. So early on. And then as I started to invest and I had investments coming in, some passive income, I had some, some real estate, Airbnb, I'm a host on, on that as well. So all those things kind of, kind of helped me feel better in my financial independence journey, but yeah, cash flows. It's really important. And I think there's a certain sector of Twitter that kind of shits on nine to fives, but they're a phenomenal way. There was, it was my only way that I, I got to the point where I was at. I think it's very different. And I, I commend anybody that has, has the guts and the, the skills to do it at a young age, like you, Tony, Thank but you. yeah, but there's a, there's a lot of people out there that they want that right now too. Right. And I mean, it took, it still took me a decade to get in my twenties, which I still think I'm pretty young to have gotten to the position I'm at, but it took patience and it took a lot of discipline. It, it took losing money too. I mean, early on in my investments, I, I, yeah, I didn't really blow up accounts, but I lost, you know, five figures on a couple, a couple of trades, like very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there, there were a lot of lessons learned and I was constantly reading books and getting curious. So it was patience and discipline and just mm-hmm. consistency really. Yeah. And I think what you're saying about we do live in amazing times where you can rent your house, you can pop in a car, or you can even rent a car to then try, you know, drive an Uber. And there's so many opportunities. So kind of coming back to Airbnb, I just dropped, I think, like $9,000 for my bachelor party over in South Carolina, which is crazy. So I know there's money to be made on that side. So we've talked mostly just about you and about the kind of this mindset and, and being able to have this financial freedom, more or less. But Let's switch gears to kind of wrap this up here, talking a little bit more about Airbnb, because it, it is a company that everyone knows and loves. When it first came out of the IPO, it was like crazy price of like you. I've been waiting to, to get into it, but you know, I see it as a money-making machine, but I'd love to hear from you specifically, like what attracts you so much about it? First, I'll start by saying that I missed the email as an Airbnb host to get shares at the, like the pre-IPO price, which I think was like $60. Yeah, 68. I, I've mentioned that on the pod like five times. It was 68, opens at 150. I remember watching it and I was like, wow, I wish I would have gotten it pre-IPO. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had only been a host since like 2018. So I think I would have only gotten like maybe 10,000 worth. But still, like, I mean, right off the bat, I felt like I was getting FOMO, like right when it IPO. So I, I did start a position at, at about like 150 IPO price. And then <clears throat> I've been kind of waiting because just with valuation concerns. I mean, with everything in the market right now, like Snowflake and others, um, everyone mm-hmm. you know, concerned about valuation. So I, mm-hmm. I kind of figured that that with most IPOs that you're seeing, Unity that pulled back from like 170 down to like, what, 89. And yeah. I mean, Lemonade had a, hit a huge run from like 50 to, to 180 and then back down. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of being patient on this one as, as the IPO base is being formed, but started a position and right now I'm, I'm adding to it. I mean, I love the company and the mission personally, just with travel, like the overlap, I'm a user again. And like we talked about just companies that we use and products that we use that are right there in front of us. That for me is Airbnb. Like when I go to travel, I'm not looking for just like an accommodation. Like I'm, I'm looking for a full experience. And, and I think Airbnb wants to be a part of that. Like they don't want to mm-hmm. just be a housing rental company. I think they want to be like the experience economy right. um, and mm-hmm honestly can see them doing that, not just like in the place you travel to, but in the places at home too, just 
being that broker for experiences yeah. around mm-hmm. your home and when you travel. And they're, they're doing some of that too with Airbnb experiences right before COVID. I mean, obviously they did some virtual ones, but I think they're charging like 20% to host an experience like that. So I think that's that's like a growth area to me. But for me, it's it's a two-sided marketplace. I know I know you guys both love Etsy, right? Yeah. Mostly Anthony, but... Uh... I've, been, I've been a fan of it for a while just because like you said, I've been hearing like a lot of people talk about it. A bunch of people I know were like, I, I buy on Etsy and I sell on Etsy. And I was like, what what is Etsy? Let me check this right. thing out. <laughs> Yeah, I love Etsy too. I, I use it all the time for gifts. That's an, that's another one. Um, but a two-sided marketplace is those are the things that are so hard to create and they create such strong network effects once mm-hmm. they're, they're set up. And I, I wrote this down, 22% of, of Airbnb hosts became one just after being a guest. So like, and that was my experience oh, wow. too. I went out there and and I, I started traveling and and was staying as a guest and I was like, why don't I just do this? Especially yeah. for like international, like it'd be a cool way to give back to people, to let people see, come see Denver and things like that. But I think that's a really strong marketplace that, that's going to have a ton of network effects. Yeah. I was doing, uh, I don't know if you know, couch surfing prior to, to yeah. Airbnb when I was traveling, we were staying at $5 hostels and being like, oh, I don't know, you know, that's kind of expensive, you know, <laughs> my buddy when we were, cause I, I went out with like $20,000, which is like my whole net worth at the time when I went traveling. And I like started burning that away. And like my buddy came out uh, to visit me and he was, he was in Hong Kong for business and he came out and he's like, yeah, we should definitely like go down the slide. And I was like, yeah, we'd love to, but it's, you know, it's $10. I, I don't know if we can like afford that, <laughs> then budget for the night. And so it's, it's come a long way and just Airbnb right now, it's, you know, it IPO at a funny time during the pandemic and it, it's just bound to explode. I, I was just in Vegas and like people were so aggressively like, trying to get out. I mean, Vegas is maybe a one-off you know, use case, but people are so excited, I think, to, to finally get out and have those experiences you're talking about. And then the other piece is like, we talked about the entrepreneurship. I mean, Fiverr, Etsy, Shopify, right. and Uber, they're they're just, it, one, it's cool to give back to those things because it's enabling anybody to become an entrepreneur, these platforms. But I also just think that that creates this, this strong brand and community and the two-sided marketplaces mm-hmm. that, that really make like the, the brand powerful. I mean, Airbnb, it's a powerful brand. I saw that that 90% of the site traffic during the pandemic was direct or unpaid. So they, during the pandemic, they removed basically all sales and marketing expenses and they didn't have any, any fall off. That's, in that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, 90% was, was there. And Brian Chesky said, he's like, the lessons we learned in 2020, we're going to carry forward. So they're going to reduce all those operating expenses and continue to do it because the brand is just so powerful. People are, are using it more and more on their phones. I think like 60% of the user base is millennial, but be interesting mm-hmm. to see if they'll capture some of like the seniors as they start to retire and travel and do RVs and things like that. Who knows? But I, I think there's a lot of tailwinds for it too, like so remote work, I can see how they become almost like the we work, but right. just distributed because we're blurring the lines between work and travel and mm-hmm. life, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, now it's okay to have my dog interrupt me on a conference call because everyone's, you know, everyone, right. no, it's amazing. So, so we're all home or we're working, but we're also you know, at home and we're traveling, we might be working remotely. So I think that's going to be big with the reopening anecdotally. 2020, I made the most as an Airbnb host that I've ever made because I basically was like, I don't really want that many people in my house. So I'm just going <laughs> to I'm, I'm throw it up. I, I put it up almost like double the price. And like all the three weeks that I put it up last summer got booked right away. 
at wow. like at like two x the price. And I, I'm seeing it right now. I just the pent up demand. I mean, I, I plan to go on a, a road trip in July with my fiance. And I, I just got back from one and we stayed at two Airbnbs on that, on that uh, mm-hmm. trip as well. So I think people, people are, have this pent up travel demand. And a lot of it is like, it's kind of changing travel needs. People are like getting away from cities and they're going to like national parks. Like I was at mm-hmm. Zion national park last week and the shuttle is sold, sells out within a minute. So, Jeez, so I actually crazy. had to rent electric bikes to get into the park. Otherwise I would have had to hike six miles because they only have a shuttle system and every day it just sells out within a minute. So the parks right now are flooded. I went to five of them in Utah and wow. they're just, they're flooded with people right now. That's amazing. Well, I, I think you have a, a lot of knowledge. I mean, you're a couple of years younger than me. And like, I think we have a lot of similarities, worked in tech, have, have traveled and that's really cool to see even someone younger than me doing what I aspire to continue to do and, and get to again. And we love your quotes too, by the way. I, you know, I always wonder like, where the hell has he come up with this, like a young Naval or something? But do you have, <laughs> do you have a, a specific quotes that you kind of live by or your favorite quotes to kind of wrap this up here? Well, just a comment on that. Like, yeah, I, I got a lot of this because I, I started getting deep into like stoicism, meditation mm. and things like that during like the beginning of COVID because I mean, it was a tough time for like everybody, yeah. every the world mm-hmm. just came to a halt and we lost communities, lost our, you know, some people are our identities and things like that. So yeah, that, that have kind of been mixing in a little bit of that personal development stuff. Cause it's, it's passionate, you know, I'm passionate mm-hmm. about it. And I think it, um, I think there's other aspects to just making money. I think being oh, truly yeah. happy is, is about having a good internal world too. So I, I like to mix those in. I mean, I love Naval. One of my favorite quotes of his is just play long-term games with long-term people. Yeah, um, yeah. On, on Twitter, the short-term mindset is like, it's toxic and it's also almost contagious. Yeah. There are times where I can feel myself actually like kind of reverting to, to feel like a bit of FOMO or to feel a bit of fear because I'm going through it and I have to like tailor my feed and like block mm-hmm. or, or, you know, follow people because there's such a short-term mindset. And I just think that the, the ability to think long-term and to surround yourself with other people that do it, yeah. you're, just, you're, you know, the, the, some of the, the five people you hang around the most, yep. all those people are long-term minded then you're going to be long-term minded. And I think that's where success comes from. It, you're not, you're not going to get rich overnight and you're not going to become financially independent overnight. And, and if you do, you're probably going to lose it. <laughs> that's why lottery winners like lose most of their money. And it'll probably happen to Dogecoin people as well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So awesome having you, man. It really a pleasure and, and really good to meet you. Yeah. Tony, Danny's the man. I, I feel like, you know, you hear about these people on Twitter and then you talk to them. You don't know if they're going to be like as genuine as they are in real life. And like, this is not a front folks. I really think like Danny's as genuine as he sounds on Twitter. So listen, I'm looking at the clock right now. I still got a pack before my 9am flight out tomorrow. So we kept it kind of light on this episode. We got a short week, obviously with Memorial day, very short for me heading off to my bachelor party. So Tony, take it away with any thoughts to ponder for the upcoming days. You know, I always have something to say, Avi. I'd say all the pounders, take a good look at your holdings and kind of figure out what kind of investor you are because there's been so many rotations happening between meme stocks and big tech and then value cyclicals, commodities, crypto. I think it's important to make sure that you're looking at an ETF or an index or some kind of benchmark gauge to know where you are based on where the market is and, and where your holdings are from that. 
So I think like, for instance, like we're pretty much growth investors, Avi and I, but you know, if you're a pounder and you are half growth investor, half cyclicals or commodities, get those ETFs or those indices that track your portfolio properly, right? Like look at ARK, right? If you're a growth investor, look at IWO if you're a growth investor. And if you are a different kind of investor, look at the, the subsequent index, right? If you're very much so focused on like value cyclicals kind of names, just track the S&P 500. If you're a small cap kind of guy, take a look at the rut, right? So that's pretty much something to take a look for like risk appetite. And that stuff's important because there's so many different moves that are happening right now, right? It's like you've got 10 different games going on at the same time. So that being said, Pounders, I got Avi in on a podcast right before his bachelor party, just to show you guys how much he loves you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he loves it. So we'll be back, Pounders, next week with a much longer episode and some more things to come. So keep pounding, guys. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. Yeah. Make a play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm about it, about it. This one here for all that try to count me out and they still counting. Honestly, I never doubt it. Say the top is never crowded. Well, I'm trying to climb the mountain till I need a few accountants. Stock is rising, perfect timing. I'm in prickle with the try. Shawty sliding, she wants sushi, she wants eel sauce for the rice. I just peel off with the light, took her heels off for the ride. Don't say real talk, just a lie. I'm a real one, I provide, yeah.